Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. Bring us together in large groups, put money on the line, and anything could happen. This is a show where current and aspiring business leaders can understand the people dynamics at play in their organizations and learn skills and techniques to improve their chances of long-term business success. This week, I'm joined by Carolyn Sellers, a practicing psychotherapist with her own private practice where she works with individuals to heal and grow, resolve fears and doubts, and address old patterns and behaviors. Carolyn's unique in that she's also been the former head of HR for a high-growth healthcare company that went from nothing to 20-plus locations and over 1,000 people in just three years. She's an expert in thought and emotional patterns that hold us back as individuals and how that translates into our work as teams. This is a really interesting conversation, a little bit different than some of the other conversations on this podcast because we're really diving into the psyche, into mental health, which is a really popular and important topic right now in the world. There's a lot being done to reduce the stigma of mental health, but there's still a lot of conversations around what is mental health, how do we think about it as leaders, how do we help our people, and Carolyn really gets into that. Uh, We talk a lot at the beginning about individual mental health and about how we can think about our own psyche, how we can think about our own issues, talk a lot about shame and the impact that that has on us. And then we get into a little bit later on how this plays out in a, a corporate setting and what leaders can do to really make sure that they are helping their employees live their best lives and deal with whatever their issues might be. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Without further ado, here is Carolyn Sellers. And we are live here with Carolyn Sellers. Carolyn, good morning. Hi, O'Brien. Great to see you. <laughs> I am, uh, I'm super pumped for this. You and I have known each other in a couple different capacities. And all of those create this really interesting lens through which I think you look at the world. And I know we've had a bunch of fascinating conversations. And there have been several times where we've said, God, I wish we were recording this. And so now we are. And so I'm excited to, <laughs> to get in and explore this. You've been head of HR. You have been a social worker, correct? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You are a trained psychotherapist and you've been a personal coach. Mm-hmm. What is the difference between coaching and therapy? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and it's a, it's a common question is, is what, what is the difference between coaching and therapy? And I would say it's a really fine line is they're both helping orientations and there's a lot of crossover. There's a there's an often a misperception that like coaching is forward looking and psychotherapy is backwards looking. And I would say that that's that's not necessarily true. That that psychotherapy can be very forward looking. Um, there's a particular framework that I use called ACT acceptance commitment therapy. That's all about orienting your current state and future state towards your commitments and values. So I've had coaches respond to that model and be like, wow, like that's very, that's a very coaching model. So really in my opinion, I think the difference between coaching and psychotherapy is a matter of responsibility. 
So there's a level of professional responsibility that is required of psychotherapists that coaches don't have. So if I'm working with somebody who is um, at risk, so they have suicidal ideation, my responsibility is, is higher as a psychotherapist. I am responsible for ensuring that person's safety. Where a coach, if you know, if they have a client who reveals that they're suicidal, they're going to make a referral. They're going to say, you know what, this is probably outside the scope of my professional responsibility. You should perhaps seek out psychotherapy in addition to our services. And sometimes coaching and psychotherapy can can really complement each other because coaching can really be oriented towards specific needs. So I've worked with and had relationships with coaches who specifically work with CEOs, for example. And so they're coaching CEOs on how to work with the board of directors, um, you know, how to how to handle the com- the complexity of business, business issues at that at that level. And a psychotherapist is not going to have that level of specific expertise in most cases. But there are coaches who really do delve into the personal. They delve into trauma. They delve into the history. And you know, I've, I have friends that are coaches. I've worked with coaches in the past. And I would say they can be just as effective. It's just, it really comes down to professional responsibility and then what the client's looking for. So a client might feel more comfortable working within the framework of coaching and feel the stigma of psychotherapy. Although I hope we're unpacking that more and more that people are really feeling more comfortable with the idea of psychotherapy. Yeah, they're really, they're really brother, brother and sister in my, in my opinion. So where do those rings overlap, right? If we're drawing a Venn diagram, there's a little bit of a difference that you just talked about, but, but what's the overlap in the middle? Yeah, I mean it's it's really what are what what is the client working on? What are their needs? And then what is I think what is the expertise at the table? So there are psychotherapists who don't touch certain subjects. I mean, actually every every professional in the space is going to have a limitation on what they work with and what they don't work with. And so when people ask me like what kind of psychotherapy do I do, I'll say to them, you know, there's probably more things I won't work with than things I then that I, you know, I, I work with plenty of things. There's more so saying that like there's things I, I, I know are in my limitation. Um, like I would f- refer out for certain subjects. So, so you, what you want to do is you want to find a professional, a helping professional that has expertise in the, or an interest or um, a scope of working in the area that you're really wanting to work on and, and evaluate for fit. Yeah, that's a good point because people talk a lot about, oh, I'm seeing a therapist or, oh, my therapist. And we just sort of assume that that means the same thing all the time. And it's the same with like, oh, I hired a coach. Oh, I'm working with a a personal coach. That that sort of means one thing. When in reality, everybody's got a different need and we should be thinking about these coaches and these therapists in a little bit more specialized manner. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And, and you know, another way to say this is that I'm a firm believer that we need multiple healers in our life. That when we really want to do inner work, when we want to do self-work, we should never be in an orientation where there's one person that has all the answers for us. If we are in that orientation that this one person has all the answers for us, we are, we are essentially giving our power away to that person. We're elevating that person and instead of elevating ourselves. And It's idol worship, right? Yeah, exactly. And so in my own process, I have accessed a lot of different coaches or 
done my own therapy. I know I'm a serious meditator. Um, so yeah, I've, I've accessed a lot of different wisdom from different traditions. I've, you know, I've read, you know, you, you kind of are constantly, when you're exploring in this space, it's a good idea to have, have many teachers try, sample different um, wisdoms that exist out there. And I know, O'Brien, you and I could kind of enjoy talking about some of those things. So, because there's, there's such a diverse number of ways that we can really think about um, uplifting ourselves. Yeah. I mean, that's a topic that I'm passionate about too, is just getting as much perspective on the world from as many different peoples and point of view as possible. And I, I think about that with therapy and with coaching, you and I, full disclosure, have worked together in a coaching capacity, right? You, you've helped me at different periods. I've worked with other coaches too. And then I think about that really with mentorship too. Like people will look and they'll say, oh, I need a mentor. And they feel like they need some formal relationship with one person who's going to pull them through their career and like give them all this sage wisdom. And the reality is that person is a unique person. You're a unique person. And a lot of what they have to share with you probably won't resonate because your, your styles and personalities are different. And so the best perspective, I guess, that I took at the beginning of my current job is realizing that, like there was no one person around me who was exactly who I was going to be. And so I've learned from everybody around me. And I, you know, I view friends as mentors. I view coaches as mentors. I view bosses as mentors, but I also view colleagues as mentors. Like I think just the more that we're all looking to learn from everybody else, the better than we get. And I, that def, that's a little bit of a tangent, but it definitely comes back to from a healing capacity, working through whatever issues you have, getting on the path, being the most effective version of you that you can be. Yeah, something my my husband and I talk about, and forgive me, for, you know, all the scientists and mathematicians out there. He he is a mathematician, so he's given me some of this language. But we talk about the concept of entropy. Again, I'll probably say this imperfectly, but you know, the, the concept of entropy is you know the tendency of the universe to move towards chaos. And how I view all of these things is almost a resistance to that entropy. You know, so our our bodies as we age you know, start to, to fail us in some ways, like they need attention. And when we work out and we eat healthy, we're kind of pushing against that, that entropy. And, you know, psychotherapy is something that's pushing against that entropy, the, the tendency to devolve, the tendency to move towards chaos. So, if, so when we work with, when we do meditation, when we work with a coach, when we, you know, work with a trainer, when we take a Taekwondo class, when we do yoga, like all those things are kind of they're activities that kind of push against entropy. And, and, and I, I doubt that's even possible necessarily. <laughs> the, the, the theory of entropy is not that you can push against it necessarily. But in theory, it sounds like a, a good idea. And it feels that way intuitively. Like as you do these things, you can feel yourself, you know, you feel the, that you're kind of pushing against that tendency towards chaos as you do these, these different practices. What drew you to this originally? How did you get into this work? And I guess it'd be good just to go back and kind of talk about the evolution of your career, because I think it would be good for people to hear the different lenses that you've looked at the world through, and then we can get into sort of how that relates to business and, and to organizations. So yeah, I got my master's in social work in 2005, and you know that, that field I felt very drawn to. I think being in a helping profession was always something that I saw 
found myself in. Um, but then I did a number of different things before I, I returned to the field of social work. So as a social worker, and folks may not know this, but the social work educations can support you into moving into the professional capacity as a psychotherapist. And when I pursued that degree, I always thought that that is, was where I was was headed. Um, and in, in some ways, I th- you know, I think that was very true, that that was kind of where I would would, would end up. So I've, I've you know, done some psychotherapy part-time at the same time that I was working in higher education. And then I worked in the healthcare space at a startup and I had a couple of different roles in that space. Um, and then finally was the head of HR for three years in that space. And then, you know, I started having a client or two here and there in, in a coaching capacity, kind of leveraging my experience in a leadership position um, and be able to help clients through that lens. Um, and then there was just, it just was a natural transition to really working as a full-time psychotherapist. It just kind of became the next logical step for my life. And I really love the work. I really love working with clients as a psychotherapist. I really care about my clients. I really find it intellectually stimulating. I think that's one of the things that is most enjoyable for me is just, is there's so many there's so many different models and um, ways to support people in their process. Yeah, the field of psychotherapy is one where there's there really is lifelong learning. Sure. I, one of the things that I think makes you really good is there's there's an element to you that makes people want to tell you stuff. Uh, I know that you and I have just caught up for coffee and then it sort of turns into an impromptu therapy session sometimes. Uh, but I think... I've thought about that with you and you just have this incredible ability to communicate that you are open to other people. So it's, it's definitely well, a natural, you. definitely a natural fit. <laughs> there are therapy sessions for me too, O'Brien for <laughs> coffee. <laughs> That's good. I'm feel like, I always feel like I'm taking a lot of those conversations. So mental health is a topic that is getting a ton of attention right now, nationally, as well as in the workplace you know, I do benefits consulting. And one of the topics that we're talking about with every one of our clients is how to add mental health support and resources into their their programs. And we were talking about that pre-COVID pandemic as well. It was one of four topics that we identified in 2020 here as really emerged or really emerged and one that everybody was dealing with. Now with everybody living in a pandemic, you know, a lot of people feeling isolated in their homes under quarantine, it's getting even more attention, but it's kind of a nebulous term, right? Mental health. How do you define that term? We'll start there. How do you define that term? So, yeah, I I mean, I think when I define mental health, you know, I, I think about, you know, there's this, this lovely discussion with this, um, he's a neuroscientist, Dr. Richard, Davidson, who talks about the four constituents of well-being, and that is resiliency, outlook, ability to manage your attention, and generosity. And so when people come to therapy, there's something in those areas that feels off for a client. And so, and that, and that can look many different ways. And that's where we get into, you know, diagnoses. That's where we get into the DSM. And f- just a comment there that as, you know, I work with clients, I am, I'm not super focused on what is the diagnosis that someone has. I'm more so 
just curious about what is manifesting for them in their daily life that just that feels troubling, that is a challenge, that really inhibits their potential, inhibits their finding meaning or happiness in their life. So whatever that those things are, like that's what we're addressing. So it's 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 not about addressing a diagnosis, it's about addressing what are the manifestations that are outside of those four constituents of well-being. Is it fair to say that that's that you're diagnosing the symptoms and then going deeper to figure out what the root causes of are those of those symptoms? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 really just listening and continuing to ask lots of questions about what is it like to be this person and what are what are their goals? What are they needing? What's missing? You know, what what is their history? And so it, it, that deep listening, yeah, you you might identify specific symptoms. Yeah, and that, that's one way to conceptualize it. But it's it's really for me just like like connecting with what's there for that person. Do you find that there are similarities that you see or that people fall into certain buckets consistently, or do you find that it's just kind of all over the place? You know, it's it's the answer is usually both. <laughs> so, uh, but but I think one of the things that is consistent that I think a lot about is people have tend to have really ruthless inner critics or shame, the manifestation of shame. So, um, and what I what I've really observed is that people who are depressed, what they're really suffering from is an overactive inner critic. And with depression, people withdraw and they become inactive. And as they become, it becomes a snowball of inactivity and withdrawing. And with that withdrawing, the inner critic gets more and more ruthless. Um, or the shame, if you prefer that definition of it, gets more and more ruthless. And the thing is, we believe these inner critics. And so um, people come in and they, they're really a term that we can use as being fused. So they're really fused with their inner critic. They, they can't even see outside of the inner critic. So um, a lot of my work with people is from a mindfulness perspective. And with, from a mindfulness perspective, what we're helping people do is to practice cognitive diffusion. So they're starting to observe what the mind is giving them and not necessarily believing the mind. So the mind is got all these mean things to say. And then it's like, okay, this mind has all these mean things to say. One, is it helpful? Two, is it true? Also, where can we befriend the inner critic? So this inner critic is well-intended. The inner critic is just wanting the best for you. The inner critic is wanting you to get out of bed. The inner critic is wanting you to pursue your dreams. So there's an opportunity to befriend this voice instead of being at war with it. Can you talk to that? Uh, how in God's name, could that critic actually want the best for you? I think that's a hard, really hard thing to come to terms with, right? You know, everybody has that voice. I have that voice. You know, it crops up. And instead of saying, oh, this this voice really is looking out for me, I want to say, like, shut the F up. I'm going to just conquer you and put you back in your place. But from conversations with you, I know that's not the most effective strategy. So why do you say that that voice has the the best intentions for you and how should we all be thinking about that critical voice? Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's worth asking yourself, like, how well does it work to try to conquer the voice? How how well does it work to try to dominate it? It really just incites a greater war inside. Yeah. It works in the short term sometimes. (laughs) Uh, 
but it doesn't doesn't make it go away. That's for sure. Yeah, I, I like thinking about it like a child who's having a tantrum. And you know, if you have a, t- a child who approaches you who's really upset and dysregulated, like you don't scream at the child and say, you know, shut up and get out of here. You know, and it, I mean, maybe some people do, but it's not who we aspire to be. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So yeah, so I mean, th- what happens when you scream at a tantruming child? It just gets worse. It gets worse. They get louder, and so we we can treat ourselves in that same way. That when we scream and fight with and are hostile towards these parts of ourselves. There's this quote, um, and I'm not remembering who to quote here, but it's um, the parts of us that we deny become hostile towards us. And we can feel that. We can feel that hostility. We, we've become, we can create hostile relationships with ourselves by not really creating space for some of these parts. So, and letting them share what their concern is and befriending it. And, um, and so, and that's, this is something that is like a larger model that I work from that I really believe in called internal family systems. And that's probably the, the primary model that I work with with clients in therapy, because it really does get to the heart of the feeling. A lot of psychotherapy is very left brain. It's very cognitive processing. And the thing is we all talk about our problems and we can sometimes just talk very intellectually, but it doesn't, get to the actual like core of the feeling. And so what I particularly like about this model is that it it can really help people connect inside to those core parts and those core feelings and work with them in a, a way that is befriending them. It is a, a, a way that, and it can reduce that kind of inner hostility. So what does that work look like? If it's, if it's too complicated to describe, I could, we can just link it and people can go check it out on their own. But is there like a, an easy framework to kind of understand of how that works? Yeah. So I love talking about this model, So, uh, but I'll try to keep it brief. So this model asserts that um, everyone has a core self and your self energy is this compassionate, kind, confident, creative energy that is that essentially every human being, um, no matter how fragmented, no matter how much any challenge that human being has, they have a core self. And... Um, we also have parts, and these parts manifest in response to life experiences. And so we have manager parts that are the parts of us that um, protect us from shame. So they are, you know, if you go to a business meeting, it's like everyone's in their manager parts. Everyone's like, okay, I know what to say here. I know what I'm an expert. I have, you know, let me let me jump in with this feedback. And it's, you know, it's from a, a part of them that really is you know, like, okay, we're going to, we're going to minimize my feelings. We're going to, you know, present as put together. We could notice that in each other that we often like look around and everyone looks put together, but inside we, we, we struggle with stuff. <laughs> well, that's where that quote comes from. Everyone's fighting a battle you know nothing about. Yeah, exactly. It's like pe- people are in their manager parts and there's, and there's nothing wrong with parts. Those parts are well-intended. They're meant to protect you. And it is, it is appropriate you know, maybe to show up in meetings and your manager parts. It's just acknowledging that that's what's present. That's that's the part of you that is present in those meetings. And then in this model, there's also firefighter parts. And firefighter are the parts of you that they're more hostile in their presentation. So firefighter parts maybe drink too much or use drugs or scream. It's like the part of you when you're in a fight and you say something that you later regret, you're like, oh, shoot, my firefighter came out and talked to my spouse in a way that I really didn't want to talk to them. They cut, they develop eating disorders. And so again, these parts are well-intended. They're doing these behaviors because they're intending to protect the 
the person. So they're they're like, you know what? I just can't handle this. I need to shut this down. So I'm going to go have you know a couple beers tonight to like really you know ease my pain. So it's so there's these parts. They're well intended, but sometimes they can get more extreme. They can take on really extreme roles that can be softened. And so back to the discussion of depression. You know, the inner critic that shows up in depression can go can essentially get into a more extreme role. So having an inner critic is healthy, right? Like if we if we didn't have inner an inner critic, like how many things would we act out or do? Like it's nice to have someone to check us inside to be like, should you really be doing that? Or <laughs> maybe uh, maybe you shouldn't have that donut or you know, let's you've had too many beers. Like an inner critic is a healthy part of your. Um, psyche, but it becomes extreme. And so that's what the, the thing with our parts is they can take on extreme roles that that just need some softening. They need some nurturing so that they can cool off a little bit in what they um, and how they behave. It seems like acceptance would be a good word to kind of summarize a lot of this stuff. But accepting the parts that we're sh- ashamed of is really hard to do. I mean, that's why you have a profession. (laughs) (laughs) It is really hard to do. Yeah, it is really hard to do. I like even, even I have, you know, like I was talking to a friend who's also a psychotherapist and we were both talking about how we have parts that we're like, we're shy to show other people or like to admit to because, you know, part of being human is having rich inner worlds that are really vulnerable to share. And yeah, we want to keep a lid on this stuff. Like we want our manager parts are often running the show because they're like, let's keep the vulnerable stuff um, on the shelf. Let's let's hide these vulnerabilities. Let's pretend they're not there. And it becomes like a backpack that you're carrying around and you're just avoiding what's in the backpack, but you're still carrying it around. And that's where psychotherapy can be helpful is like, you're carrying the backpack back around anyways, it's with you, but do you like, maybe we can lighten the load in the backpack by making some space for some of the things that are in there. Yeah. One of the big realizations that I had in working with you is that you can reframe the things that you're ashamed of. I, I think that's where the power is in a lot of this is you have something that you're ashamed of because you feel like it's it's a bad part of you. But if you realize that that part is actually serving some positive end, it's just overreacting. Then you can look at it a different way and say, oh, okay, I, I'm not ashamed of that. I'm just, it's just acting up too much right now. And I just need to give it a little bit of what it wants. And then it'll quiet down and it'll go away. And that might sound really kind of woo-woo and esoteric, but like a good example would be, you know, when you're working really hard and you're really ashamed that you don't want to work anymore, you know, that you have a bunch of work to do and you feel the responsibility to do it. You owe it to your coworkers or colleagues or your family to get all this work done. And all you want to do is go sit on the couch and you just feel more and more called to that. And you're so ashamed of being lazy not that I'm speaking from personal experience here, but <laughs> you know, you're so ashamed of feeling lazy and that there are all these other people that are out working harder than you are and that, that you know, that, that, that can present as a shame. But if you just realize that like, no, that part of you is just trying to keep balance so that you can go out and get all that work done. And if you just give it a little bit, just give it a little bit of balance, give it a little bit of rest and recovery. Now you can go out and do the things and that voice is much quieter. 
that was the case for me for that voice and other voices. But I think that's, that's just an example of how this all gets put into action. And you don't have to feel ashamed of that voice. You just have to recognize what it's trying to tell you. Yes. That's, did I learn something from you? Yes, that's exactly right. (laughs) The one thing I'd say is that I think we, the one, yeah, the one thing I'd like to highlight is that I do think that we are, we're right now, we're living in a very, um, like positivity focused culture that can lead to, you know, what people are calling spiritual bypassing where like I have something painful, but I'm going to just think positive and like drill through it and like happy, put a happy face sticker on something that's deeply painful because I can just reframe what's painful. And, you know, I think there is what you just described or what we worked on is like, is really doing some deep listening and really making space to validate what's there and really kind of getting in the mud with what's painful for a moment. You know, a nice way to to frame this is like descension work. And I think sometimes we are so focused on ascension work, like think positive, you know, be uplifted. (laughs) Like even the beginning of this talk, I'm like, how do you uplift yourself? So there's so much focus on the ascension that we deny the descension work. And so when we so the thing I wanted to just to offer was that when we do this work, we're not just reframing, although reframing ends up being part of the process for sure. But what we're doing is really deeply listening and validating what's there. We're not bypassing our pain. We're not bypassing what's sticky. We're really getting in the mud with it and saying, I'm willing to listen. I'm willing to sit with you and what's 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 painful. Um, and that's what I'm doing as a therapist with a client, but I'm also helping the client do that with themselves. Like, are you willing to get in the mud with your parts that are holding deep pain? Are you willing to just be with them? And the thing is, what most of us are doing in our daily lives is just running away from what's inside. We're, we're denying what's there. We're saying, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. And so we are invalidating ourselves all day long. And then we create a hostile relationship with ourselves because we're deeply invalidating what's there. And so a lot of this work is coming into relationship with yourself with compassion and validation. And then when we do that, we can de-escalate what's painful. We can, we can be in relationship with it. And so we can, we can be the, the source of comfort to ourselves. You know, so when we have uh, parts of ourselves that are saying, pay attention to me, pay attention to me. I need something. I need something. We can turn towards those parts and be willing to be with them and say, you know what? Yeah, today's a bad day. Um, this is painful. I can be with you in this. And then inevitably things shift. Like, uh, you know, something to always acknowledge is that there's, when we're suffering, there's an illusion of permanence that I will, I am suffering and therefore I will always be here. I will always be in the suffering. And, um, and so we can, we can even offer that as a moment of discomfort when we're suffering, like this is painful right now, but I'm, but I know this is impermanent. Um, there will be a shift. Even if I do nothing, there will be, there will like life changes, life changes around, life will change around us, you know, um, even if we do nothing. Yeah. I was having this conversation with somebody the other day talking about accepting parts, but we were talking about the pain of working out. And I think it's kind of a good example because like to your point, acknowledging something doesn't make it go away, but, (laughs) but acknowledging it can make it make the impact of it less severe. And 
I found that with my own workouts, you know, I've done workouts that have pushed me pretty hard. And that inner quit voice comes in at some point where you're like, this is stupid. You shouldn't be doing this. You should just quit. You should give up. And it's not when, when you fight against that, that voice just gets louder and louder and louder. But when you just recognize like, oh yeah, this is the part of the workout where I want to quit. This happens every time <laughs> I push myself. This is that point. That the workout doesn't suck any less. It's still painful, but you just recognize it. And for some reason, it just like takes the edge off. It takes the threat away mm-hmm. of that thing. And then you get to choose rationally, like, okay, no, I'm going to keep going because this is just that quit voice. We've gotten to the threshold where the quit voice steps in. And then I just want to, <laughs> I just want to go away, but I'm I'm gonna choose to push through that. And I think that's true with other elements of painful experiences too, to say, Oh no, I, you know, I lost a family member. I recognize that this is painful. I recognize that I'm going to be in pain maybe for the rest of my life. And this is something that I'm, that's now going to be a part of me. Just recognizing that I think can really help take the edge off of the fact that it's maybe what it does now that I'm thinking out loud here is maybe what it does is it just changes you from being the victim of it to being able to have a little more control of it. Yeah. So and what you're what you're perfectly describing in the the act model that I mentioned earlier, it's called acceptance commitment therapy, is um, cognitive diffusion. So we're often fused with our inner experiences. So when the quit voice takes over, you you believe the quit voice. And so what we do through mindfulness practice is just to observe the quit voice. So we diffuse from it. We're like, oh, there's that voice that does this to me. <laughs> and I even like to practice giggling at it, just, you know, finding it funny, adorable, something just like, oh gosh, look at that part of me that showed up here to scold me or look at that part of me that showed up here to tell me to quit. And then we have flexibility then to choose. So that's, that's when we diffuse from our thinking, we have psychological flexibility available to us. We can decide that we do want to believe that voice. So sometimes we're like, yeah, you know what, actually... I'm not, I'm, I was just getting over an illness and maybe I do need to quit today. Maybe I do need to, to take it easier today. Or you have the psychological flexibility to say, you know what, that, that voice is there and I'm aware of it, but I don't actually have to listen to it. Let's switch gears a little bit here. Cause we've been talking a lot about personal work and I think that that's super relevant for everybody out there, whether you're stay-at-home mom or a corporate executive or a frontline worker or anybody else, right? Everybody's dealing with these issues. But a lot of the people that listen to this show are business leaders. And so while they're doing this work on themselves, they're also leading other people. You've had the opportunity to be an HR leader in an organization as well. And I'd be curious, how should business leaders be thinking about this? Because it seems like an overreaction to say that a business leader should be aware of all of these dynamics going on for all of their people. And yet to ignore this completely seems a bit ignorant as well. These, these are issues that manifest within everybody. And if you can help people through this or or harness this in some way, you're going to get the most out of your team. You're going to be more successful. Your team's going to have more fun doing it. So where does a leader start? in trying to help their people and get their their minds around mental health in the workplace? Well, yeah, I think one of the most important things that leaders can focus on is building teams that have psychological safety built in. 
So creating high trust environments, creating um, an environment where people can share and, you know, feel faith in their leader, you know, trust their leader to treat them well, you know, um, ensuring there's no shame in someone's management style with how they, how they work with their employees. Can you, can you define psychological safety? Yeah. You know, you know, psychological safety being feeling trust and emotional safety, freedom from shame, freedom from being shamed in the workplace. Sorry, I don't have a perfect definition for that. No, and that's fine. And the way that I think about it, uh, the way that I've come to understand it is people feeling like they could be vulnerable, that they're not going to be punished or shamed or bullied or anything like that for expressing an idea or a behavior that, you know, failure is okay. Not that we're aiming for failure, but that failure is okay, that they can take risks like that, that type of a thing. So I don't, I don't have a good definition of it either, but that's... That, you just perfectly defined it. I got tongue-tied. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. You perfect. And I remember hearing, we've had some people on the show talking about it specifically. And I, mm-hmm. I think if leaders are thinking, like, I think leaders can think less about responding to mental health issues, although I think there is some th- there's plenty they can do to respond. It's more so, am I creating a workplace that is essentially conducive for people to thrive? And I think being really respectful um, and mindful of power differentials, like that's, that's something that I hear a lot about from clients and something I thought a lot about, even in reflecting on periods where I was a leader, you know, there's definitely times as a leader myself where I feel like I, you know, I really felt like, oh, I'm a human. I'm just being a human with my team. And it's like, you know, I'm, no, I'm a human with more power than my team. And, you know, my team knows that I have a lot of their fate in my hands, like whether they get promotions or raises or they get fired or what the performance review looks like. And so um, I think underestimating the impact of that is, I think, something that we're, we're, you know, there's a missed opportunity there. There's so much vulnerability that employees feel with their, with their leader. I mean, people have nightmares about their bosses. They remember their bosses for years. Like we all remember our bosses. We will always remember our bosses. Like we'll be seven years old and remembering our boss when we were 20 years old and how we were treated and how, so I I think we really as, as leaders, you know, building a team of psychological safety and just being mindful of the potential harm that is, you know, that could, can come from that power differential. Well, and we've all, seen or heard stories of somebody who goes in for a seemingly innocent conversation, it winds up breaking down and crying in the boss's office. And it's not that that person necessarily is weak-minded or anything like that. It's just that those power dynamics are jacked up in that person's mind to 10. And that's what, you know, there's so much fear there that the emotion just comes spilling out of them. So what are the best ways to alleviate some of those power dynamics so that you can have psychological safety and and open up that conversation to get to what's really going on. Yeah. And and sometimes it might be, you know, creating space to to not get to what's going on. Like sometimes it's like just saying to the, to your employees, like, Hey, you know what? Like, you know, you, you know, if you are suffering from something, like I may not be the right person for you to open up to, you know, it would perhaps be good for you to see a therapist. I think reducing stigma around mental health. I think the more people who can be honest about, like I've seen a therapist, I've worked with someone, um, you know, we invite other people to feel comfortable also leveraging those resources. So that we're like full of quotes here, but that makes me think of the quote, you can only lead people as far as you've led yourself. 
mm-hmm. or you can't lead people farther than you've led yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, if you haven't done any of this work, then to be able to say, I think you should see a therapist, doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't quite come off the right way. <laughs> Whereas if you have done some work and you can say, hey, you know, what's been, it seems like something's going on. What's been helpful for me in these situations is to have somebody to talk to and work this out, whether that's a coach or therapist, you know, I would be happy to support you in finding somebody to work through this with, or you can tell me I'm wrong, but you know, whatever. Um, you know, that's a much different conversation than, I don't know what's going on here, but I think you need to talk to a therapist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, and also make a, make a point that I have uh, reflected in my own leadership and also in talking with clients about their experiences with leaders that, you know, because there is such a discussion about vulnerability. There is, there is a desire to inject more vulnerability into the workplace. And I think that that's a really valuable discussion. Um, but I think the potential downside of injecting more vulnerability is missing the power differential that, you know, I've, I've worked with clients and even thought of my own, my own experience as a leader that, you know, sometimes we want to inject so much vulnerability that like, we're actually requiring our employees to share when they're like, Oh gosh, like I have to share all this. I'm expected almost to be really vulnerable when like there is this power differential here. And maybe I don't want to share, you know, I'm, I'm working in a workplace where there is a lot of sharing and maybe I just don't feel comfortable with this, with this much sharing, but it's oddly required of me. And, and yeah, like maybe my, my leader and I would feel, I would feel comfortable with a few more boundaries and in, 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 in place. So it's vulnerability with, without kind of a, a, a acknowledging the potential impact of the power differential, I think can feel really bottomless. It can feel ungrounding. It can feel with boundaryless. And so, so that's yeah, something- it's not, it's not a light switch you're flipping on, right? It's not like, Oh, now we're all vulnerable and we take it to the extreme. You know, it's not ones or zeros. It's a dichotomy. It's a balance. It's finding the sweet spot of being able to share and then also knowing when to just, you know, put your head down and get your work done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Underperformers. So often people can go through a lull, right? Where they have something going on in their personal lives and that they bring that to work and that can affect their work experience. There are other times where people just aren't cut out for the job that they're in. They don't fit with the culture, you know, whatever the case might be, they, they shouldn't be in that organization or doing that job. How should leaders be thinking about those initial conversations with underperformers to be evaluating whether this is something that can be worked through or whether it's just not a good fit? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, something that is really healing for, uh, most of us is, is truth telling. And, you know, we can approach employees really regardless of their performance with some compassionate truth telling, um, you know, sharing, and that, you know, that's really what the intention is behind feedback and performance reviews is to share with the person what you perceive about their performance, what their, are their perceived strengths and weaknesses are to enter into that kind of truth telling dialogue to invite the employee to share you know, what their perspective is. And so, you know, you know, in my experience, low performers also have a sense that they're low performers, like somewhere there, they can feel the like, oh gosh, like, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not meeting my boss's expectations. Maybe, you know, there, there might be some um, passive aggressive things that kind of come up that that person's like, I'm clearly not pleasing this person. And, you know, I think it's better to tell the truth than to show your irritation 
or behave in passive aggressive ways that, that sometimes just leak out. You know, if you're dealing with a low performer and they're irritating you or you're struggling with them, you know, sometimes those that becomes perceivable to the person. And it's much my, in my experience, it's always perceivable. It's always perceivable. If you are thinking it, <laughs> it doesn't matter what you say, it is perceivable. It's amazing how that has proved to be true. Like if if there's an issue there, you you have to address it because it it will manifest in your behavior in some way, no matter how much you're trying not to. Exactly. So the kindest thing to do is to just enter into a dialogue where there's truth telling to say, this is what I'm perceiving about your performance. This is where, you know, you're falling short. This is where I might see that you're struggling. You know, can we have a conversation? Do you, you know, do you think that you're in the right role? Like, where do you perceive you're struggling? Like, that can be such a, uh, it creates much freedom. Like you've, you've taken something that's unspoken and you move it, moved it into the realm of spoken. And, you know, even if those conversations don't go well, it, it still is, you know, moving in the direction of, of moving away exactly what you just shared, which is moving away from the passive aggressive, moving away from the implicit and making it explicit. And yeah, I think one of the most compassionate things that we can do sometimes is to, allow people to move on to roles where they are perceived as successful. You know, nothing is more painful than being in a role and feeling the weight of, gosh, I'm not good at this. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, or, you know, gosh, I'm, you know, my leader is, is displeased with me. Like going to work every day, feeling the weight of that is really painful. And so to, to say to someone, you know what, well, let's part ways. And, um, you know, I'm parting ways with compassion, I'm wishing you the best, like go out there and like be perceived successful somewhere else can be sometimes one of the kindest things that we can do. Yeah. I, I had another gentleman on here who was talking about how they help people out of the organization and, you know, even people who had behaved poorly, you know, they were doing a lot to support them on their way out just because that was a, a value that they shared. Mm-hmm. The other thing that that makes me think about is from an employee level, or, I mean, you could be an executive and still have a boss too. Like if the dynamics work the other way too, where you can be almost, almost truth seeking as, as well as truth telling where you can say, Hey, I'm new to this role or, Hey, I'm getting a sense from you that something's not working here. What skills do I need to develop? You know, how can I be better at this? And that you can actually be proactive if you're feeling that rather than sit and let that fear build and let that scarcity build, which then just has all kinds of negative psychological effects on you to go out and seek the truth Mm -hmm. to, to get that from a leader who's maybe not comfortable truth telling you can be the truth seeker to go out, get that for yourself. And then you, and then you can do the assessment of, can I close these gaps? Can I fix this? Or do I need to go out and seek something else too? Yeah. And that's, and that's easier done, easier done when someone has psychological safety in the relationship. You know, if if they are working with a leader who, um, you know, for example, does incorporate some sort of shaming into their leadership style, like you're more reluctant to have that kind of conversation because it feels like I'm, I'm lining up for the firing squad. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I, I think that sentiment is true. And I've, you know, I've, I've had clients who I like specifically would say like, Hey, how about you ask your, your boss about this moment that you're, you know, feeling really vulnerable about, or, you know, you're feeling uncertain about like, why don't you ask the leader? And, you know, and, and, and most, most of the time it's a good conversation to pursue your leader to, to get that clarification. Um, but there's definitely times where, where people, the, the, the relationship has, 
so much mistrust already built into it that there's not really room to pursue that kind of clarity. And so, um, yeah, it just, it makes it hard to thrive. Like these types of conversations really are what thriving looks like in the workplace. But if you can't, I mean, I would argue that if you can't have that conversation, you should go get a different job and you should find a place where you can have that conversation because you're just going to wind up living in that negative environment and it's going to be a disaster for you. It's going to have all, you can't see it living in it. And I've worked in bad environments. You can't see it when you're in it, you can kind of feel it. You're like, this isn't good, but it's probably 10 times as bad <laughs> as you feel then in the moment. Cause you're so good at just suppressing it. And then when you get out of that moment, you're just like, Oh my gosh, you know, I can't believe I lived in that for so long. So if you, if you really feel like you can't have that conversation, you don't have to quit your job, but like start looking for other jobs. And then, you know, I do, I think there's value. I'm a big believer in open communication, even when it's hard. And I do think if you have a boss who's using shame or something like that to go in and say, Hey, I'm sensing that there's something I'm doing that's getting under your skin or that's not aligned with the team right here. What's going on? How, you know, what do you need from me? How can I be better? And if you're the one who owns that, if you're leading that conversation, often what you get is that person might say, you know, either, well, yeah, you know, I need this to be done. Okay. Is that it? Is that all I need? Okay. And then when you, and it, you can start to repair those relationships or my, what you might get is somebody to then be vulnerable and say, I'm sorry, it's not you. I've got all this other pressure going on in my life. And you can say, okay, well, is there anything I can help you with? And then you can be part of the, the solution. I, I really like the book Extreme Ownership, which I had Mike Sorelli on this, who is a leadership instructor for Echelon Front, which the founders of Echelon Front wrote that book. And it doesn't resonate with everybody because it's a military book written by Navy SEALs. And so like that environment doesn't necessarily ring true for everybody. But the le- the theme of that book is you have to own everything in your world. You have to take 100% ownership of everything in your world. And that includes leading down, but it also includes leading up. Mm-hmm. And I just think the more that we have that mindset about our own career, the more successful we'll all be because it just helps you break down some of those communication barriers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm secretly afraid, I guess not so secretly now because I'm sharing it, that this podcast is not going to run very long because the answer to all of the people dynamic challenges are psychological safety and tough conversations. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, yeah. leader, and leadership. I think those are the three. Like if you can be, if you can be a strong leader of yourself and others, if you create psychological safety, and if you can have tough conversations, you can get through just about anything. I agree with the discussion or like that exact philosophy around 100% ownership. And I, I think that position puts us in, in an experience of agency for ourselves. And that kind of empowering sense of agency, you know, is where we can stand in a position to make change. But I, I do think that, you know, one of the, the challenges of that perspective is minimizing where institutions can traumatize and cause harm. And that really is a discussion that we're having right now as a country around Black Lives Matter, policing, you know, George Floyd, of course, is there is an acknowledgement that institutions can traumatize, that institutions um, discriminate. And so, and, and that can look a lot of different ways. It can look 
like, you know, the ways that we're looking at right now, you know, in the, the area of racism. But I think it's back to this discussion of the power differential, is that whenever there's a power differential in the water that we swim in, that there are, there are groups that are less empowered and then experience some of the, you know, experience the reality of that positioning. And then there, there are positions that are more in power. And those, those folks experience the position of that. And so for me, that's always a, a line that I'm walking when I'm thinking about agency is, um, you know, there, it, it's, so, it's so important for us to come in and look at ourselves from a position of like, where are my conscious choices? Where can I empower myself? Where are the critical conversations that I can have? But yeah, when you think about like, you know, someone looking for a new, you know, you know, looking for a new job, like sometimes that takes a long time. And then you're sitting in an environment where there are some really challenging dynamics where there is, you know, shame as part of the leadership style. And someone sits in that for a while. And you're, you know, I liked your share about how sometimes it can be a long time after that you're still reeling from that. And even sometimes having some more clarity on how bad it was. Um, I've worked with a number of clients who have had negative exits from companies and then really like, you know, a a year later are still kind of reeling and unraveling the trauma of that really negative exit. It's agency and kind of looking at where there is institutionalized power dynamics that, you know, put elevate some people and um, disempower others. I, I think that's a great clarification because it is really easy for people sitting at the top of organizations or institutions that are doing some harm to say, oh, well, you know, if everybody just pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and owned their own work, like this wouldn't be a problem. And the reality is that, that some of the systems are created to prevent that, whether, whether intentionally or not the reality or the result of that system suppresses some groups and and supports other groups. And so I I think you're right. It's the balance where it's only going to get better if you take the onus to try to make it better. And and it could be anything, right? It could be any circumstance that you're sitting in. It could be your relationship with your boss. It could be some of those institutional problems. Bringing that forward, offering to help, you know, really being an active part of solutions around you is the way that we create, that we solve some of these problems, right? If everybody takes more, we, t- we talk about uh, diversity and inclusion right now. It's not just that we need to hope that the leaders create better systems. It's that we need everybody to be an active member of creating that better system. And the more people have that, that locus of control and do what they can with, even if it's really small within their world, that's going to move the needle the more people we get doing that. At the same time, you might have to have the realization that, hey, this system is not going to change. The, the way that this system is structured, the people who are managing this system have no incentive to listen to me or to ever change. And that's where I'm going to start investing more of my time and energy looking to get into a different system. And yeah, you might have to work in that for some period of time. But you know, and especially we're in a pandemic right now, it might take a while to find a new job and you might feel lucky to even have a job. But there's nothing that says you can't start looking. And, mm-hmm. and the more, I just feel like the more that you are acting on the world to create the world you want, the better that will be, whether it's in your company, somewhere else, for your community, you know, whatever the case might be. But I, I totally hear what you're saying. And I, and I think that that's an important distinction too. Sometimes it is the system. 
Yeah. And I think that that discussion of empowerment and, you know, being part of the solution, like we can do that at the individual level and then we can, we can choose to participate at, at more of a macro level. And I think that's where we are, you know, there's, there's a lot of discussion around, you know, white allyship at this time. There is, um, there, you know, there is a focus on as a, as a, as a white person and, you know, you know, as I'm connecting with, you know, on the subject, it's like, I, I, my duty now is to be anti-racist and to participate in community around being anti-racist and to grow my own knowledge of my, what my whiteness and how that, you know, is participating in a system that, um, creates harm to, to, to black people and people of color. And, um, so I think this, this is something that I think can be really, um, it's like it's an important time for for that discussion, and I'm, I'm I'm appreciative of that kind of coming into the light that you know we can work at the individual level to empower ourselves, but then also are we kind of looking at these power differentials that exist in society, and are we willing to do the individual work? Um, and this is also mindfulness. Like mindfulness is like you know what am I what am I noticing as inside of me? What am I noticing my belief systems are? Um, what belief systems might exist inside of me that are flawed? What are the things that that I've been given? You know, there's there's a, a beautiful podcast that I heard, and the discussion was like, you know, white people would benefit from asking themselves, like, what do I believe about black people? Um, what are my beliefs about black people? And I and I think even just that question is so it's just so important for us to be doing that mindfulness introspection. So not just in our own process, but like in the process of living in 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 society, living in a society that has systems and structures that, that, that mindfulness introspection is, is really, is really doing the inner work. Like back to this conversation of overcoming entropy, like we, some of these systems are part of the entropy that we're existing in. So can we push back on some of that through our own um, mindfulness practice, our own mindfulness about how we're, where we're participating? That's great. And we are, coming up on the end of time here, and I want to be respectful, and you and I could sit and just go all day long at this. I have one question that I've been asking most uh, of my guests, which is just sort of a, I'm just curious to get people's perspectives on it. What in your mind is the purpose of business? Oh, God. (laughs) I get that reaction a few times. I'm like, I don't know what to say to that. What's the whole point? What is the purpose of business? You know, I think it's about creation. It's 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 about what are we creating? You know, it's an opportunity for somebody with a particular vision, um, a goal. You know, to better society, to better ourselves, and and you know, there's a specific goal. There's a specific manifestation that that you're pursuing. You're wanting to bring a particular uh, work product, something into the world. And it starts with somebody's real, you know, vision of what that can look like. And so, yeah, I think one of the things that's really cool about business, like business is it's, it's, it is, you know, the opportunity for people, people are pursuing their dreams. They're pursuing creation. I think that's a great answer. (laughs) I think that's great. See, and you were so nervous about answering that question, but you did it so well. I think that's great. Carolyn, uh, thank you for the time this morning. Thank you for sharing. It is wonderful to talk through some of these things. And I think it's really is helpful for people. One, it's helpful, like you said in the beginning, 
let's start breaking the stigma down of this stuff. We're all dealing with it. We all have shame. We all have parts of ourselves we're trying to suppress. And there are ways that we can deal with that, that, that aren't, you know, woo woo or aren't, you know, that, that are very practical that help us live better lives, be happier people, be more productive, you know, and get more out of our time here. And the more that we acknowledge that, acknowledge that with other people, even in the workforce, you know, the more we can start to do that work, the more we can all get better. And the more, to me, it's just like the more fun we can have, the more productive we can be. And the more productive we can be means the more fun we can have. Right. And that's what it's all about. Our time here is short. Let's just have as much fun as we can with other people, with experiences. Let's just, let's get out and and build the lives that we want to build because nobody's going to build it for us. And, And I think a big part of that is getting through some of this mental work to be able to clear ourselves up to go do that. So I I think this topic is, is incredibly important. Yeah. I I really enjoyed being on the show and discussing these topics. Um, You know, something that, you know, to articulate about our process that, you know, is we're getting the heart of is that as a human, like life, like painful things come up and, you know, something that we can talk about is clean pain versus dirty pain. And clean pain is, you know, I get a cut in my arm and it's bleeding and it needs to heal and it will heal itself. And, you know, but there's, you know, there's things I can do to take care of that, that, and I'll just feel the pain, that clean pain and dirty pain is I cut myself and I like poke at it and it gets infected and, you know, it scars and it doesn't heal right. And then it gets reinfected. You know, it's, and so one of the things that we can do with ourselves is be willing to feel the clean pain and metabolize the things that have been painful in our lives. And when we do that, you know, we have the ability to move through it. Um, it's when we avoid, it's when we deny, it's when we poke at it unproductively that we we then start to feel the dirty pain and it becomes chronic pain. So, uh, you know, a lot of this work that we're talking about is about kind of feeling the clean pain, you know, as things are difficult in our lives, because, you know, a human, there isn't a human life that doesn't come with some manifestation of suffering. Well, and I had this conversation with um, Jennifer Fondravoy, who was on here, we're talking about mergers and acquisitions. And we talked a lot about grief. Mm-hmm. And a big takeaway for me in that was, the more you try to suppress grief, the longer it's going to last. It becomes dirty pain. <laughs> it becomes dirty pain. And, mm-hmm. you know, the more that you suppress pain, the more it becomes c- contaminated in your metaphor, it becomes that dirty pain. So just acknowledging it allows us to move through it. It's, you're still going to feel it, it's still going to take time, but it allows you to move through it in a different way and, and get back to living a healthier life. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, Carolyn, until next time, thank you very much. And uh, I really appreciate your insights. See you for coffee sometime in the future. <laughs> I look forward to it. Hey, folks, one last thing before you go. If you have a friend or colleague who you think would enjoy this episode, hit that little share button and send it their way. Also, if you like the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss the next one. That's it. Thanks for coming. I'm O'Brien McMahon. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.